This is an ABC podcast. So where exactly is Richmond? It's about 10 hours. Oh yeah, he could say that again. Got a bus from Cairns to come pick everyone up here to go out for the reunion. It's 2003. Lavin and Militia are in far north Queensland, on their way to a big family reunion. There's a lot of us that went from Cookdown and family from Yarrabah, Townsville. My grandmother's sister came up from Sydney. And there were families at Richmond waiting there also. And from Richmond, the bus to this family reunion just kept going. Probably another couple of hours. Out on country to Woolga Valley, which is now called Middle Park. To our property in Middle Park. It's beautiful out there too. But this reunion wasn't a straightforward celebration. It brought up a complicated mix of emotions for this family. That was something special, yeah, and happy to be back to country and sort of eared to be back to a massacre where the massacre took place. It was when Lavin and Militia's family learnt about a massacre carried out by Queensland's native police a massacre hidden in their family for over a century. Hello, I'm Daniel Browning, and this is The History Listen. Today, we bring you part two of our story about the impact of Queensland's native police. It ran from the late 1840s until about 1904, and it was notorious for its violence against Indigenous people. In this episode, we speak to Indigenous families grappling with big gaps in their history gaps caused by the violence of the native police and frontier conflict. Georgia Moody takes us to far north Queensland. Lavin and Militia grew up and still live in this part of the world. My name is Lavin Keys. I grew up at Yaraba. I was born in Cairns. My name is Militia McIver. I grew up in Hopevale Mission and in Cooktown. But when they were growing up, they never learnt about the frontier violence Indigenous people survived in colonial Queensland, even though it fundamentally changed their community and their own family. When you were a kid going to school, did you ever hear much about frontier conflict? No. Never heard anything like that, nah. Not at all. Not in the schools. When the first fleet used to come in Australia, they used to talk about things like that in the primary school, but never used to talk about Aboriginal massacre in class, you know? It was something they don't talk about. Yeah, like we go to school, you know, and we learn about every other culture but our own. So Lavin and Militia didn't learn about Queensland's native mounted police. They didn't learn that the state-funded force was made up of Aboriginal troopers from other parts of the country, acting under the orders of white officers. They weren't taught about the massacres the native police carried out on Indigenous people across the state. But all that changed in 2003 at the family reunion in Richmond. That was the first time they heard about an important woman in their family tree. 
We didn't actually know her name until about 20 years ago. All we knew that was my grandmother was from at Westway near Richmond. Her name was Maggie Walgar. Everyone in their family, all the cousins and second cousins, descended from her. The family meeting was also the first time that many in this family learnt where Maggie's country was. During those days, we didn't even know anything about Middle Park, that Middle Park was our country, you know? What did it feel like to stand on your own country? Oh, it was so incredible, dancing, recovery, and yeah, it's a wonderful feeling to be there where a Granny Maggie and a clan was, you know. We were actually sitting out under the trees on the banks of the Woolgar River. This is Lindley Wallace. She's an archaeologist. She's been working on a huge research project on Queensland's native mounted police for almost four years. She was at the reunion back in 2003 because she'd been working with the local Aboriginal corporation. And it was a pretty emotional time for a lot of the Aboriginal descendants of Maggie. This was the first time they'd actually been out to the Woolgar River on what is their traditional country. We went over to Middle Park for me for the first time. Then there was this bloke there named Dick Kreb, he's the Graces there. Yeah? So he took me for a drive to show me Middle Park. And it was a bit strange that a white man is showing me my own country. I think he knew more than what I know. <laughs> yeah. There were actually quite a few non-Indigenous people at the family meeting. The local Aboriginal corporation was considering a mining lease, so they'd brought in lawyers, anthropologists and archaeologists. And it was those white people who told Lavin and Militia's family about their ancestor, Maggie Woolgar. We would go out and do some cultural heritage surveys during the day and in the evening we'd sit around and the anthropologist would talk about Maggie and sort of said, well, this is what we know about what happened. We got all together and talked about the history and who are the rightful descendants from Maggie and we just basically just learned about, about Maggie Woolgar and, and about the massacre and how did it happen. Then we heard about Granny Maggie, she, she was the sole survivor of that massacre. Everyone didn't know about anything about the massacre or our Granny Maggie, for instance, you know. We didn't know the whole story until the meeting. We didn't even know her name until anthropologists share what they knew about our Granny Maggie. This is the story they heard. In 1879, gold was discovered on Woolgar River, which runs through their country. Gold miners rushed to the region. Not long after them came the native police. On the 12th of August, 1881, two detachments of the native police arrived on the gold fields, led by two different white officers, Henry Kay and William Nichols. Two days later, Henry Kay and one of his Aboriginal troopers attempted to move some local Indigenous men. 
one of the men, Aboriginal men in the group, turned and speared Henry Kay through the heart. Henry Kay fell off the horse, immediately dead. He was one of only a handful of white officers who were killed in the line of duty. The response from William Nichols, the other white officer there on the goldfields, was swift and brutal. William Nichols led his detachment of troopers and Henry Kay's detachment of troopers on basically a killing spree for the next four days. They got those native police to hunt for these tribes and they just massacre any tribe they could have seen. Clearly only one Aboriginal man had killed Henry Kay and yet William Nichols killed, so the story goes, pretty much every Aboriginal person he saw for the next four days across the goldfields. But Lavin and Militia's ancestor, Maggie Woolgar, survived. In 1881, she was about 10 years old. Maggie was hid by a white woman, so the story goes from several different sources. And they hid her from the troops? One of the stories says she was hid under the bed. They hid her underneath the bed and from that massacre. Another story says she was hid in a sack bag, flour sack, potato sack bag, or something like that. You know, scared out of her wits. But she was certainly hid out of sight. Yeah, she was the only survivor of the Wolka massacre. Thank God that she survived the massacre. You know, I wouldn't be sitting here if Maggie Wolka didn't survive. There is only one person who we know definitively came from the Woolgar River area, and that was Maggie Woolgar. There should have been hundreds of people who came from that area whose descendants are alive today. Like, if this story was not true, where was everyone else? The white native police officer, William Nichols, was never charged with anything in relation to the Woolgar Valley killings. Three years later, he was dismissed from the Native Police for his role in the killing of a different group of Indigenous people at Irvine Bank, inland from Cairns. As for Maggie, we don't know much about her life after she survived the Woolgar Massacre. Maggie spent a lot of her adult life between Yarrabah and other stations in the Richmond area. I know she married a full-blood Aboriginal by the name of Jerry Woolga. They had a traditional married at Middle Park area. And she went on to have children. Maggie herself doesn't seem to have spoken much about what happened to her, understandably. I did meet one old man at Yarrabah who had known Maggie. He said she was a very nice woman, but he had not heard any stories directly from Maggie about her childhood or about what had happened to her back in 1881. That could explain why Maggie's descendants, like Lavin and Militia, didn't know she survived a massacre. It was too painful to speak about. When you learnt this history, what did it mean for you? I felt very emotional at first. And to learn about it was exciting and upsetting at the same time because we didn't know much about Nan's side, but it was a good thing to talk about it, you know, so that we actually knew where we come from. 
Do you talk about this history with the next generation in your family? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, all the time. All the time. I've got two brothers and I've got cousin brothers who have kids. I have none. But I'm always talking about the history, you know. I'm like, you know, this is something that we're going to learn. And I tell them about Maggie Woolga and, you know, she's the only survivor. Like, I just keep talking and talking. And they go, what? Oh, we didn't know that. You know, so I think it's very important for the young ones to know. But there's still so much they don't know and probably will never know about their ancestor Maggie. To us, it's really us because she didn't even get the chance to pass it down, the language or a clan name, you know? We don't even know a parent's name because of that massacre. You try and imagine what it was like for her and any of the survivors of these types of events. And, you know, it would have been incredibly traumatising. And not only have you lost all your family and friends, but your culture, your language has been destroyed. There are very, very few people left with whom you can communicate. A tribal language wasn't, you know, we don't even know that. We can't find that because they were all massacred. I've come here to speak to Indigenous people about their understanding of Queensland's native police. But I'm finding that some people have more questions than answers. One of the consequences of the devastating work of the native police is that people like Maggie weren't able to pass on their language, culture or history. Perhaps it's no surprise when you learn how many Indigenous people are thought to have been killed by Queensland's native police. One historian estimates they killed 24,000 people. Another estimate puts the death toll at just over 41,000. Here in Yarrabah and other former Aboriginal missions around Queensland, frontier violence means that many people are disconnected from their country and from their own history. Here's Lindley. It's very complicated when so many people were killed and survivors of massacres were often then rounded up and sent off to missions. People were often shipped 800 or 1,000 kilometres away from what would have been their traditional country. They were no longer allowed to stay on their traditional country and continue to practise their customs and culture. So it's very complex and very difficult for a lot of Aboriginal people in parts of Queensland today because of the particularly violent history. Up the road from where I speak to Lavin, at Yarrabah Beach. I go to meet a man called Darren. Uh, my name's Darren Kayuna. I'm a descendant of the Wanamara tribe. Darren does know his language group, but there are big unknowns in the Wanamara side of his family. Unknowns caused by this history of conflict. Archie, that's your grandfather? Yes. So your grandfather's mum ended up here in Yarrabah? Exactly. She came in a few years later. We're on a leather couch in Darren's living room, next to a wall of photos of his daughters at school formals and graduations. She's buried in the old cemetery. Do you know where she came from? Um, She's actually from the Cluncurry area. 
So Grandfather Archie's mum was actually a Metacuti lady. And that's why I'm connected with um, Auntie Pearly and all them. Is there a horse out there? Yeah, that's my Palomino. He sings at me every day for bread. Fuck, wood. Come here. Someone want to say hello to you. Visitors, mate. There you go, boy. <laughs> Say hello. Say hello to them. Hey. Darren's Wanamara heritage comes from his dad's dad, who lived on country until police brought him here to Yarrabah. My grandfather got dragged here around 1903, and he was only 13 years old, and he was the only male descendant of the Wanamara tribe left, practically what he was telling us. They moved him all of a long way, you know. So it's actually a 12-hour, 15-hour drive from here in a car, nearly. And they shifted a lot of Aboriginals in there back in the old days and put them in these places like Yarraba and Palm Island, Sherberg, Hopewell. My dad just to tell us how his dad got here and, and he was telling us about the massacres. They wiped out old tribes out there. I don't know why they did that. What was his name, your grandfather? They gave him a name when he came to Yarraba. They gave him the name of Archie, Archie Kayuna. We didn't know his language name. When he came to Yarraba, you couldn't speak um, language here. The priest would not allow any language, so they taught him English. That language got taken away, our culture's been removed. That was really concerning to us because we did not know the stories and the dreamings of our area. Our tribes were practically wiped off the earth because we don't have much family groups. We can't connect back to our country. There's nothing out there for us anymore. The place is all taken up with station owners and whatever else is out there, mining companies. So we can't get native title out there. Frontier violence means that Darren and his family were stripped of their land, culture and history. Darren feels this is a common story in Yarrabah. Us Aboriginals should be um, taught and um, we should be educated about ourselves too because a lot of us really don't know what's happening and where we come from. Yarrabah's a place where you don't even, people don't even know where they're from. We didn't learn about our own massacres in Australia, especially in, in the high school and that. And these things um, have not been told to anyone. They've been kept a secret. Do you talk about this history with your kids? Oh, yes. Um, I tell my daughters so they can tell their kids. So we need to keep that history, but it's, it's only locked in families. We need to open the whole door up and let everyone know about it, you know. The whole Australia should be aware of it so we can move forward in the future. I've come to Townsville to meet Hazel and her son Lance. They know more about their family history, but it's left them with just as many questions that are impossible to answer. My name is Hazel Sullivan. I am a Yellinger woman and a very proud one at that. My name is Lance Sullivan. I'm a Yellinger man, a Euro. We're sitting in Lance's big backyard. There's a trampoline, lots of palm trees and a birdcage with a few budgies. 
Lance says they remind him of Yalina country. Both Hazel and Lance grew up on their country, which is out west, south of Mount Isa. When we sit down to chat, Lance tells me a story passed on to him by his uncles. This is what I was told by my uncles, Tom Sullivan and Clem Sullivan. For just over half an hour, without stopping, Lance tells this story in forensic detail. For many reasons, it's a painful one for his family. What happened at the beginning when settlers first came into our country, they went up to Wunama, a water hole on the um, Sullivan Creek. He tells me how four white men were killed by Yalina people at the Wanamo waterhole in 1878. Mulva went in first. The other three men followed him behind. That's when the Aboriginal men speared them. There was a series of reprisal killings for the deaths of those four settlers, led by a white officer in the native police, a man called Ernest Eglinton. That was um, Sub-Inspector Eglinton and um, his troopers. They started um, shooting them all the way back to the Jara area, around in what they call the spinal country, around in the hill country. Eglinton said, oh, well, we'd best try to clean up a bit more. There seems to be more Aboriginals than we thought. So he went out and um, up those two rivers and started shooting them along there. It's not known exactly how many Indigenous people were killed. One estimate is that at least 100 people died. The shootings went on for many years, many years. That was the last of Yellinger's real strength. Lance's great-grandmother, Ruby, survived the massacres. And Lance's great-grandfather was the white police officer engineering the killings, Ernest Eglinton. We were directly descended from Ernest Eglinton, but we're also descended from Ruby, who is his mistress. And she became pregnant and she had Willie back at Yamli Yamli. He was born there. My dad was, at that time, the only child of Ernest Eglinton. And the old man did give him his name. He was William Eglinton. My dad would have been only a child. He would have been about five or six when his father left that area. What was Ruby like? My nan, she was a very striking, very beautiful woman. I believe she would have had to have been a very strong person. She showed so much pride. She didn't look as if she was, you know, a battered woman or it didn't show in her face. I just wonder, you know, I think the women like today, mum and them, they have a romantic belief about um, Ruby and Ernest Eglinton having a relationship. But to us men, we were taught different. I think she had no choice but to go with him. And I think she did it to survive and for her family to, be, to survive. Hazel, the native police have a reputation for being very, very violent. Very cruel, yeah. Oh, yes, yeah. I know that grandfather would have been one of the hardest ones. But then in those days, he would have been one of the first ones out in that part of the country too. He was the first police inspector for the Bullia district. He, I believe, built this stone house in Bullia that was used for the police headquarters. We're trying as a family now to get him recognised in Bullia because I think it was an embarrassment to the white people in Bullia that he had an Aboriginal family. So Hazel, how do you think 
and feel about Ernest Eglinton? That's a tough question because really you think of him, he just came here to butcher a whole lot of people up and cleanse the country and yet he lived with an Aboriginal woman. So, I don't know. But it must have been hard for him too, knowing that he has to shoot his mistress's family. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it was. He had to live with it too. It was a job he was sent out to do. That's how I see it. It's very heartbreaking, you know. And to know that you're actually that man's granddaughter. Goodness, that's my dad's father. It's like, I guess, having a murder in your family, you know. For me, it's not an embarrassment because we had to walk on both sides of the fence, you know. And as my dad always said, you know who you are, be proud of who you are. You can't change anything. Never forget who you are and where you're from and who you came from. Don't have anger towards a trooper, Eglinton. Even though he killed a lot, don't be ashamed of the old men. Ah, be proud of them. We are the survivors. Yeah. We survived. Like many of the Indigenous people I spoke to for this story, Lance wants Australia to reckon with the history of Queensland's native police. We shouldn't forget it, what happened. So writing books and that about it and talking about it, I think that'd be a good healing process for Australia. Yeah, to acknowledge it, you know, and to be proud that we survived and that we're all working together to keep going forward. And we've got to learn from that. Yeah. But even though he wants the nation to talk about this history, it's not something he's able to bring up with his own kids. So do you talk about the history of massacres with your children? No. I've kept it all quiet. They don't know anything now. They only know that they have to go to school and things like that. Yeah. Lance, why don't you talk about this history with your children? Uh, <laughs> I don't want to scare them. I think if I showed them things like that and told them about it, they would, have, they would have frightened them more and they wouldn't understand it. They would ask too many questions like, Anglington, how did he become the father of Willie? How did he get to know Ruby? Why did she go with him? They'll be asking so many questions and these questions I can't explain. And uh, I don't want them to have hatred towards Australians. We cannot hate them. What happened? What happened? Happened. I think they need to move forward. Mm, I think that's the main reason I haven't told them. Perhaps this is why there are unknowns in Darren Kainuna's family history, or why Maggie Wolgar never talked to her kids about the massacre she survived. One day, Lance might talk to his kids about this difficult history. In the meantime, he's focused on teaching them their culture. The best way to fight is with knowledge. Have knowledge of your country, your songline, and always keep that in your heart. The best way to really survive is to pass on that knowledge to the younger generation. It's about surviving. 
that was Grappling with the Gaps, the second in our two-part series about Queensland's native police. It was produced by Georgia Moody with sound engineer Tim Simons. This is the History Listen, and Rebecca Huntley will be back with you next time. I'm Daniel Browning, and this is RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.